people think they're taking care of themselves, they're protecting themselves, when in fact, they don't know the science behind it. And so therefore, they have a false sense of security. And that's one of the major issues that we were trying to solve. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. You don't often hear of a practicing physician, a surgeon no less, moonlighting as a product designer. But that's exactly what my guest today has been doing for decades. Dr. Peter Bernuti is an orthopedic surgeon with more than 300 patents to his name and hundreds more outstanding applications. By day, he does knee and hip replacements, an essential service that he's never taken for granted. But it's his side hustle that's even more fascinating. He runs Bernuti Technologies, which operates as an R&D incubator for new product developments in surgical instruments, implants, and procedures. This is a doctor who estimates that he's conducted more than 30,000 surgical procedures himself. But his concern isn't just fixing us when we're broken. At heart, he's a mad scientist who never stops thinking about how to improve our lives. Peter was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, in the shadows of the famed Cleveland Clinic, an institution that would loom large in his life when he got older. His parents immigrated from what was once part of Italy, but is now known as Slovenia, his five brothers and sisters were raised with inquisitive minds and education was always at the forefront. His father was a college professor and later became the Slovenian diplomat to the Vatican. Peter says his parents gave him two choices, become a priest or become a doctor. He chose the latter and decided to study at the University of Chicago, where he was, get this, a 15-year-old freshman. What really happened was I was 15 and I took all my tests and my parents, my high school was becoming too expensive for us to afford. It was a private high school. And my father said that I would have to either go to the public high school locally, or if I wanted to try, I could go to college early and see if I could get a scholarship. So my older two brothers and sister were in Chicago for college and law school and graduate school. So my father had me apply to University of Chicago and I started there at 16. I had a full ride. So I had a full scholarship. So actually college was cheaper for me than high school. So I went to college early and, and I went. I mean, most 16 years old don't even have the discipline to do the school homework, needless to say, to go to university. So, I mean, you were like you know, original Dookie Hauser in some sense. I didn't know any better. I just kind of did what my father suggested. You know, you work hard and you're used to it because we worked all the time when we were kids, school and then building houses, paper routes, lawnmowers. So we constantly worked. And so studies were just part of what was required, especially as my dad was a professor, you know, grades, school was very important. And my mom was a school teacher in Italy. So that was just the focus. And we, we looked at education as a, as a primary goal. So while you're in medical school and your siblings are in their university programs, were you living together as a family unit as well? 
in Chicago, we obviously were in the dorms. So my brother was in architecture school. My second brother was an engineer. My sister was in law school. My younger brother went to University of Chicago, as did my younger sister. But we never really all lived together other than a fraternity where my brother and I lived together for two years in college. But we ended up getting all split up, moving all over all over the country. So, so you medical school and then you did your residency in Chicago as well? I did my residency at the Cleveland Clinic. They had an excellent orthopedic surgery program and it was exciting because it was true. I would call almost an apprenticeship-based program where we would work with famous surgeons one-on-one. So I would follow a surgeon through his or her, most of the guys, but they would, would follow the surgeons through their clinics, through their research, through their private practice, into all their surgeries. So we would basically assist them in all facets of their practice. And I learned a lot. And during that time, I also learned about technology, about research, and how to design a research program fund it, and then also present and lecture. So in residency, I, I learned a lot. It was challenging because I was left-handed. There was problems with learning equipment and trying to handle tissue appropriately when everyone's teaching on the right-handed side. However, as time went on, I learned that research was also important. I won a number of awards. I studied the first surgical-based adhesives and won a number of awards in residency, and I lectured all over the world during that time. So when you're in Cleveland, Let's talk about the lab. You were working for a research lab that ultimately was a pivot for a lot of the projects that you're working on and simultaneously as a doctor. Can can you take us on a journey of what the research lab was and how you ultimately took that over? Sure. I have to credit a lot to my mentor, Arthur Steffi. Dr. Steffi was an orthopedic surgeon at a private hospital affiliated with the Cleveland Clinic, and we had to do our rotations through this private hospital to learn trauma and general orthopedic surgery. So Art Steffi was working at a hospital where they had a, a machine shop and some general mechanical testing systems. And he felt that he could improve the spinal surgery market. So I was working with him again, one-on-one, and he would go to the lab and he was with a um, machinist from Poland. He was designing and building plates and screws to fuse the spine. And he revolutionized spinal surgery. And during my five years in residency, I spent a lot of time with Art. I worked in his laboratory. He taught me a lot about the idea about what I would call applied research or product development, where you would take an idea and actually look at how you can build this into a product that could benefit people and then take that later and how you build a business unit around it. Because unfortunately, a product in order for people to have mass use in order to change how medical technology is performed, he had to take it out to the market and he did it all on his own. So during the time I worked with him for five years, we built plate screws, tested them, implanted them in patients, got FDA approvals through this lab. And then Art eventually, Dr. Steffi left the hospital. And so the hospital put the laboratory up for sale. The laboratory was not what you would consider a lab. It was more a product development facility where you could build, test, and then work on redesigning and then getting FDA approval. And I ended up putting a bid out and my bid, I had to fight a little bit with the nuns to get my bid accepted, but my bid was accepted to buy this research facility, even though I had no money, no banks would loan me the money. And then the hospital wanted me to come up with the funds in 30 days. So I was looking at a number of different hospitals. I had offers from hospitals from Stanford to Emory University of Florida, but I wanted to do product development. And to do that, I needed a facility to build things. So I ended up moving to a small town in Illinois that said, we need an orthopedic surgeon. We don't know anything about research, but we'll loan you the money for your research facility if you move to our small town and practice orthopedic surgery. So 
I sat there after doing a number of international fellowships from trauma to sports to spine to shoulder arthroplasty and arthroscopy, came back and then felt that uh, the research facility was what I really wanted to do was to design and develop technology. So I accepted an offer in a small town. And they basically bought two semis to Cleveland, moved all the equipment and mothballed it for me. And then with my practice, I used all the money for my practice for the first five years to pay off the research facility and start a new building and build a business incubator in Effingham, Illinois. How old were you then? In your 20s? No, I was 31. Well, you did a lot in 15 years. So let's break down the lab. So today is Renuti. Research was that the original name of the research lab? No, we called it Apogee. I had one employee, a machinist, and we were building and designing technologies for arthroscopic surgery and minimal invasive surgery. And then as our practice grew and I hired partners over 10 years, then I moved it to a new facility. I purchased a 40,000 square foot facility in the same town and moved the research facility and grew that to where we now have close to 100 employees there. And uh, design and develop. And then we have a separate medical practice in town as well with six physicians, 10 allied health professionals, and about 150 employees. And that's your orthopedic practice? Practice. Yes, ma'am. So let's talk about the products that you've created. First of all, how many different IP or patents do you hold? Approximately 500. We have approximately 150 in various stages of the patent process. We have licensed probably over 300 of them to different medical device companies and have something over 700 products uh, have been licensed off of our technologies developed mostly in the medical device sector. So it's not common for a full tenured orthopedic surgeon to be creating products as well. So how do you decide what you're going to focus on in terms of solving a problem and then creating that product? We look at problems as they exist in industry, and we look at how these problems have challenges in terms of resolution and say, I mean, we meaning a team, but I I try to lead the team in terms of where our directions are, where we identify a problem and look at where solutions are limited or are not optimal and say, how can we enhance this? And then we ideate, we'll sit back, think about potential solutions. We design them. And then our next goal is to file IP. Our, when we file patents, it's mostly our way of like writing a research paper where we try to identify the problem and then try to come up with solutions for solving that problem. And while we're doing that, we're also building and designing prototypes to see which is the best opportunity. So we may come up with a patent that may have 10, 20 solutions, and we continue to refine as time goes on to try to find the best or the most cost-effective or the most simple solution, because we try to bring things down to what I call the least common denominator, or the simplest solution often ends up being the best product. And most of these products have been medical grade up until recently when you introduced a product I really want to talk about because I've personally been using it, the UV seed. Prior to the the introduction of, of this product, has everything been medical grade and not to the consumer? Yes, our technologies were primarily focused in the medical device space, mostly because that's an area that I knew and I had a number of industry contacts. So as we would have solutions, we would be able to license them out 
And we used that revenue to self-fund the facility. So our focus was in a space that I knew the best, and that was medical device. And as we evolved and as our team grew, we started looking at solutions that were outside the strict medical space. So we have some stuff in automotive and navigation technology, self-driving vehicles. We have pharmaceutical technology and products we've evolved to. And we also then started to look at areas in medicine that we have used and how we can apply these to general industry or commercial applications. And uh, one of them, as you mentioned, is this concept of ultraviolet C as a mechanism to individuals disinfect or sterilize on a as-needed basis, uh, an ubiquitous device, something that you have with you all the time, that if you have concerns, you would be able to treat and manage without the use of chemicals or pharmaceuticals. And the product couldn't come at a better time. This arms us with more than the hand sanitizer and a face mask. So can you talk about that a little bit more, what that really means for us consumers? Sure. Maybe the best is to understand a little more about disinfectants and what's currently used. So, for example, I'm a surgeon, and for sterility in surgery is absolutely critical. The biggest complication we can have, especially in orthopedics, is an infection. Infection and a joint replacement is catastrophic, and it affects your lifestyle. So for us as surgeons, but specifically myself, developing and maintaining sterile techniques are critical to optimize outcomes and make the patient's results the best. So we follow this, and it's it's been a lifelong interest of mine how to decrease surgical infections and how to improve the quality of care for our patients. So over time, ultraviolets lights have been discussed and been used standardly operating room. But if we look at the other disinfection techniques, for example, using 70% alcohol, which is basically what you're going to see in hand sanitizers and wipes and disinfectants like Lysol wipes, they claim they disinfect 99%. The idea is that you apply 70% minimum alcohol to a surface And then by applying that, the bacteria, virus, fungi will be damaged. Their cell membranes will be damaged and they'll break. And that's the method of disinfection. But unfortunately, chemical sterilization has substantive problems. Chemicals can be absorbed through the skin. So now we're rubbing alcohol on ourselves repeatedly and it's disinfected. But also some of that is absorbed through the skin and can have certain substantial reactions. The second that occurs with these type of chemical treatments, especially alcohol, is that it it doesn't disinfect immediately like people think. So for example, I sterilize a leg in surgery. We have to wait three minutes before we can then drape the patient and start a surgical procedure because it takes that long for the disinfection to occur. It doesn't occur instantaneously when you rub your hands or when you apply. So you have to wait up to three minutes. And that's the other problem that many disinfection concepts have had is the idea of efficacy. People think that they're taking care of themselves, they're protecting themselves, when in fact, they don't know the science behind it. And so therefore, they have a false sense of security. And that's one of the major issues that we were trying to solve is not just the the safety of the technology, but making sure it's efficacious and not giving you a false sense of security. So safety, efficacy, you don't want to have false sense of security. So people think rub alcohol, everything's done. That doesn't work that way. And so if you were to touch a surface within that short period of time, it still has contaminants. Now, ultraviolet C is unique in that it doesn't have any chemical side effects. So you can apply it. And as a light source, as it hits the surface, it damages the DNA, RNA of parasites, bacteria, fungi, viruses, even parasites. We call them pathogens. And by disrupting the DNA and RNA, in these structures at the thymine, thymine, or 
perimeting bonds, then it permanently damages and prevents the bacteria viruses from functioning. So you're essentially rendering these surfaces sterile or disinfected over a period of time. And it's much, much faster than any chemical disinfection because it only takes a matter of seconds where it takes minutes for chemical disinfectants like 70% alcohol to work. So it's a faster, quicker, simpler technology. And then on top of that, you have to have safety features. Now, the problem is we're made of DNA in our cells and tissue. So are animals, for example. So you want to protect yourself, but you also want to have safety features. So if you come in contact with ultraviolet C, much like sunlight, you want to limit that exposure. And so we built in algorithms in the device to protect that so that if the light comes in contact and shuts off, the ultraviolet C then recalculates, the system recalculates the dose and then goes back to disinfectant once the living organism is not in sight anymore. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Praveen Pimetsa, another big thinker we spoke to. Praveen grew up in an agricultural family in India and is now working in Silicon Valley to electrify tractors. What we're hoping with the Monarch tractor to do is to kind of change that narrative to where the farmer can farm in a clean way can save money while doing it. We see ourselves as a bridge between farm economics and sustainability. It's the one thing, probably the only thing that connects right now at least farm sustainability and farm economics in one product. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So let's talk about the safety because I think it's really important. You have a few kids yourself, I understand. Yeah, I have six children and I'm obviously very concerned. They're my pride and joy. Yeah. So as you said, there's maybe a false sense of security, but also maybe just expectations. People just think, oh, apply once and I'm good for everything, right? And we learned that's not necessarily the case. How would you talk to another parent about protecting their kids and ensuring that they are being steadfast and preventing bacterial spread and viruses and things like that? Sure. And that's why it's a multifaceted approach. There's no one single approach or one single technology, but you have to look at this in synergy. So for example, hand sanitizers do have their place on living tissue, on on your hands, external surfaces, unopened wounds, things you can use. They, They can be effective and they do help and they're part of the armamentarium, but maybe not quite as effective if you look at them systemically, meaning around a room, on other surfaces, on foods, for example, or air that is circulating through the room, really not quite as effective because you can't inhale these chemicals, even the high doses of ethanol that are used uh, in sanitizers because they can be toxic internally in the body. So what you want to do is look at a systems or features that have a multifaceted approach. So we look at hand sanitizers exactly for what they are, using on surfaces of hands and body tissues that are, that are covered that may not need exposure and then use ultraviolet C systems to sit there and look at disinfecting surfaces in and around 
If food preparation comes in, you can sanitize those spaces without damaging and without risking injury to the food or the food surfaces, the food prep. So that as individuals come in, you're disinfect your hands, hand sanitizers, but then you amplify that by rather than use, trying to use chemical disinfections on surfaces, you're able to use ultraviolet C systems if they're appropriately dosed to treat surface areas, food preparation areas, even the air itself, because it does treat pathogens. And many air conditioning systems or HVAC systems in your house or in industry are also linked to ultraviolet C. It's used to disinfect or sterilize air. So as we're using these ultraviolet systems, we also are cleansing the air. The second is that uh, you can't put, for example, alcohol on personal protective equipment like masks. But if you're concerned, the external surface of the mask, you're breathing in, there's pathogens on the surface. If you were to take the ultraviolet C systems, then you could re-disinfect those surfaces. For example, treat masks or other personal protective equipment, gloves, what have you. And you could keep those surfaces disinfected as well with a minimum of stress. So it's kind of an armamentarium they have. You need both, I believe, to really help in current uh, contemporary environments, problems that we have, such as with COVID currently. I want to switch to another topic that I think is fascinating. I want to talk about neuromodulation. And this is something that Elon Musk has been investing in and a a topic that I understand that is part of your upcoming research. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Neuromodulation, maybe in simplistic terms, is the study of looking at electrical current inside the human body to adjust or modulate nerve function, whether it's peripheral nerve function in the arms and legs or central nerve function in and around the brain. So neuromodulation is really a very, very broad area. But the general principles are you're using different types of electric currents, frequencies to be able to adjust how nerves function because nerves in the human body function via an electric current, essentially. So if you can provide a current, you can either enhance the nerve function or you can diminish the nerves function by overriding it. So, for example, pain is an issue. You might be able to disrupt these pain fibers by essentially over-energizing that nerve or over-stimulating it so that it stops functioning or you stop having pain. Or in other situations, you may want to stimulate a nerve like the parasympathetic, like the vagus nerve, so that you can dilate blood vessels, improve blood flow, or treat other medical conditions by, again, stimulating or overriding nerve electrical signals. What are some of those I mean, I'm thinking, you know, what some of those those conditions could be, could it be like migraine headaches or what types of things would you be able to solve with that? Absolutely. There's a broad range of treatments. So, for example, most frequently described are for spinal nerve stimulators where patients have chronic back pain or they have chronic leg pain. It initiates from the nerves in around the spine. So you can implant spinal stimulators to and adjust the frequency so that you can essentially override the pain so you can eliminate pain around the spine. They're used for bladder dysfunction. So for people that have difficulty with their bladders, so you can increase the stimulation in nerves of the bladder and enhance bladder function. In the central nervous system, meaning in and around the brain, there's a number of challenging topics or challenging problems that exist. So neuromodulation has been used, for example, to try to treat migraine headaches. 
to try to cluster headaches by overriding, but also to stimulate nerve fibers such as for Parkinson's disease, which causes spasticity. And uh, if you can override those nerve functions, you might be able to manage Parkinson's disease without pharmaceutical or chemical treatment and with a permanent implant. We've developed technologies, we've acquired some and enhanced some technologies where we're using stimulating what's called a sphenopalatine ganglion, which is a nerve bundle kind of near the eyeball behind the nose where you can actually stimulate the sphenopalatine ganglion to override pain functions in the brain and treat severe headaches such as cluster and migraine. We've done studies. We have over 700 patients implanted with excellent results, excellent efficacy, and the technology was a CE marked in Europe for a long period of time. So we've developed that, and we're looking at that technology also to enhance, for example, recovery of patients with stroke. If we can stimulate the same ganglion, we can dilate the blood vessels in the brain, improve blood flow to the brain, so it may help recovery from patients with stroke. Or for patients that have problems with cancer or tumors within the brain, the problem is getting medication into the brain because there's something called a blood-brain barrier. So if we stimulate these sphenopalatine ganglion SPG, we can open up the blood vessels to the brain and deliver pharmaceuticals or treatments to the brain that we couldn't previously do. Elon Musk with Neuralink is trying using robotic systems and he's currently checking in animals and they're using similar systems to ours where you implant a small device, then you would externally stimulate it with radio frequency waves. There's no battery to this, for example, and you're externally powering it and you can turn on and off the device with a radio frequency device and stimulate nerve fibers in the brain. So for example, his goal is to treat things like Alzheimer's or to treat people that may have attention deficit disorders or to potentially even stimulate memory or enhance memory or certain body functions by stimulating specific focuses in the brain. So it's got tremendous potentials, but the goals and the concerns are the size of the device, the battery power, it's going to energize. So you want to be able to treat certain tissues, but avoid damaging other tissues in the process. So it's a complex area, a lot of opportunity, still early in the development, but so we actually have a device that has been improved and implanted in hundreds of patients with substantive efficacy. And the company is now called Relief, and we're building a business unit around that to enhance these opportunities for patients. What advice would you give to someone like Elon Musk, who's not a doctor, about maybe some of his approaches? Or if you were to give him five minutes of advice, what would you tell somebody that's not a doctor and looking at this market space? What should you not forget? You have to you have to remember that the body works in a in a function and works symbiotically. All the parts have to work together, and just because you can stimulate certain areas, you have to be careful about the side effects or the complications or the risk to other areas. You may turn on some set of nerves turn off others and can affect other body functions and have other complications. Possibly stimulating the heart, you could slow down breathing, for example, or you might stimulate the sphenopalatine ganglion and you may actually increase patient's certain level of pain. Or if you implant in the wrong area of the brain, could you actually create terrible and curable pain or have composite problems with memory or dysfunction? So the challenge you have is the body's complex. All the parts have to work together in synchrony. And by taking things out of synchrony or trying to affect only one area, you have to be careful you're not affecting other areas of the body at the same time or mitigate the side effects of that. You have quite a sampling and, you know, of research going on too, which I think is impressive. So will there be products issued in the next couple of years that you're working on? 
Well, yes, Relief, the technologies we hope to be able to have U.S. approvals finally in the latter part of 2022. We're currently FDA filings. We received breakthrough designation from the FDA, so we're excited that that can expedite the process. As I said, we've already have quite a few research papers published that show efficacy, safety, uh, over 700 patients implanted. We can take that existing device, move it in different parts of the body to stimulate other nerve cells or other nerve ganglions to enhance different types of body function. What's exciting is that there's no battery. It's MRI compatible. We can use it in any part of the body and we power it externally so it can be a permanent implant. So if someone needs long-term care, for example, even children that have long-term diseases, possibly even things like cerebral palsy, spasticity, things like this, that there may be a long-term solution since you don't have to rip the device out, put a new battery and put it back in. By externally powering this, it opens up a whole new opportunity and also makes the devices smaller and more efficacious. So from a surgical approach, you can implant them minimally invasive or robotically much more effectively. So You've done a lot in your career in terms of this bringing, you know, products. Um, how many surgeries have you actually conducted? My guess is probably over 30,000 procedures during my career. I still do quite a bit. I will do eight to 10 joint replacements. I work now one week a month and I have to devote three weeks to research and development. So I still am a very active surgeon. So I will do eight to 10 joint replacements and some arthroscopies and some other minor procedures. So we might do anywhere from 10 to 15 surgeries, four to five days a week. So we still, I still am very excited and honored to be able to treat patients. It's probably one of the greatest things you have is someone comes and asks you, can you fix my knee? I, I do knee replacements, for example, and I consider one of the greatest honors that someone says, I trust you, you know, help me fix my knee so my function is better, I can get back to normal. So I have one last question. You're a musician, I understand. I like to play. I'm not great, but I, I do try. We recorded some albums. What do you play? I play guitar, write some music, and recorded a couple albums. We're getting ready to put another one together when I can find some free time. That's awesome. Do you have a song that would sum up your career, that your brilliant career that you created? Oh, I don't know. This, probably the song is called Cycles. It's a song about when you're young and how you age and how you think about life. And I think that would, that's my maybe one. It's the title of our second album. So maybe that's probably the closest. That was Dr. Peter Benuti. Peter says he and his team are branching out into new areas of research as they think about the next generation of products they hope to bring to market. Top of mind right now is understanding how and when people function at their best. Peter's examining why some people like to study or exercise or work first thing in the morning, while others are more locked in at night. He's looking at how to optimize people's activities and thinking through the use of technology, like wearables or implants or even pharmaceuticals and nutrition. He says he's always looking toward innovation to try and make things better for the world around him. And he's not forgetting about his music, You can find Peter's band, The Clinic, and their album, Cycles, on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>